Well, good morning again and happy Mother's Day. Um, when Pastor Don called me yesterday afternoon and asked if I could be ready to preach this morning, I said yes, having no idea what I would actually preach on. And then it hit me. Two things that go together like peanut butter and jelly. Mother's Day and Moses. So this morning we're going to talk about motherhood, Moses, and the power of God. And I finished this message very late last night, technically early this morning, so I hope that it makes sense. As we get started and before we pray, I want to share with you an article related to the topic of motherhood that I came across some years ago. It reads like this, Men, have you ever come home and asked your wife, so what did you do today? Have you gotten an answer that you were not prepared for? Listen to the answer to that question that a mother named Ramona gave her husband. It goes like this. Her husband asks, Ramona, what did you do today? Ramona stands up, brandishing a sharp fork. (laughs) What did I do today? She asks, walking towards him, still holding the fork. What did I do today? And then she hands him a piece of paper entitled, What I Did Today. 3.21 a.m., woke up, took Jeffrey to the bathroom. 3.31 a.m., woke up, took Jeffrey to bed. 3.46 a.m., got you to stop snoring. 3.49 a.m., went to sleep. 5.11 a.m., woke up, took Jeffrey to the bathroom. 6.50 a.m., alarm went off. Mentally, I reviewed all I had to do today. 7 a.m., alarm went off. 7.10 a.m., alarm went off contemplated doing something violent to the alarm clock. 7.19 a.m., got dressed, got up, warned Stephen. 7.21 a.m., made bed, warned Stephen. 7.25 a.m., spanked Stephen. (laughs) Helped Stephen, prayed with Stephen. 7.37 a.m., fed the boys a breakfast consisting of Cheerios, orange juice, and something that resembled toast. Scolded Jeffrey for mixing them all together. 7.46 a.m., woke Rachel. 7.48 a.m., had devotions. 7.50 a.m., made Stephen's lunch. Tried to answer Jeffrey's question, why does God need people? Warned Stephen again. 8.01 a.m., woke Rachel. 8.02 a.m., started laundry. 8.03 a.m., took rocks out of washing machine. 8.04 a.m., started laundry. 8.13 a.m., planned grocery list, tried to answer Jeffrey's question, why do people need God? 8.29 a.m., woke Rachel. 8.30 a.m., helped Stephen with homework, told him to remember his lunch. 8.31 a.m., sent Stephen to school. 8.32 a.m., had breakfast with Rachel, oatmeal, pulled toast out of VCR and warned Jeffrey. Here's how the rest of the morning went. Teacher phoned, wondering why Stephen had no socks. Took them to him. Returned library books, explained why a cover was missing. Mailed letters, bought groceries, shut TV off, turned radio on. Cleaned house, wiped noses, wiped windows, wiped bottoms. Shut TV off. Teacher called, wondering why Stephen had no lunch. Took it to him. Pulled spaghetti out of the carpet, cut bite marks out of the cheese, made funny-shaped sandwiches. 12.35 p.m., put wet clothes in the dryer. 12.36 p.m., sat down to rest. 12.39 p.m., scolded Jeffrey, helped him put the clothes back in the dryer. 12.45 p.m., agreed to babysit for a friend, cut tree sap out of Rachel's hair. Early afternoon, 
regretted babysitting decision. (laughs) Killed assorted insects, read to the kids, clipped ten fingernails, sent kids outside, unpacked groceries, watered plants, swept floor, picked watermelon seeds out of the linoleum, explained to Jeffrey why he shouldn't singe ants with a magnifying glass. (laughs) Read to the kids. Late afternoon, put band-aids on knees, organized task force to clean the kitchen, cleaned parts of the house, accepted appointment to a local committee. The secretary said, we thought you would have a little extra time since you don't work. (laughs) Tried to answer Rachel's questions why boys and girls are different. Listened to a zillion more questions and answered a few. Cleaned out the dishwasher. Briefly considered supper and briefly considered heading for the hills. 5.21 p.m. Husband came home. Looking for food, quietness, and romance. The husband had finished reading this by now. And Ramona still standing him over with, standing him with the fork, holding the fork, said... Of course, not all my days go this smoothly. Any questions? I share this with you because I'm convinced that we live in a day and an age and in a culture that does not honor or admire or respect the calling of motherhood that it demands. That we do not honor the calling of motherhood the way that the Word of God and God Himself honors the calling and the ministry of being a mom. It is a job that never ends. It is a calling in ministry that seems to demand endless quantities of patience and love and diligence. It is a life of sacrifice and service. And it is one of the primary means by which God is building and advancing His kingdom. Moms have the opportunity to love and invest themselves in the lives of their children and show them what it means to love and follow and serve Jesus Christ. No one will have a greater impact on my three girls than my wife. And for that, I greatly rejoice. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is building his church and nothing can stop him. The question is, how is Jesus building his church? I don't see him. Where is he? He's building his church. How is he accomplishing this task? I would suggest to you that one of the primary ways that Jesus works to build and strengthen his church is through moms and dads who love and teach and invest themselves in the lives of their children. So what do moms and dads need as they seek to build and advance the kingdom of God? What do all believers, all Christians for that matter, need who want to build and strengthen and advance the kingdom of God? Listen to what Jesus said after he had risen from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. Acts 1.8 You will receive power. What did Jesus promise to his disciples? What are they in need of? Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth and even to the remotest part of your living room. We are empowered and strengthened by the Spirit of God to go out and advance and build and further the kingdom of God. For what purpose do we have this power For the purpose of being a witness and a testimony and an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Jesus is building his church. 
How is he doing it? He's doing it through witnesses, through ambassadors, whom he empowers with his Holy Spirit to speak and to live for him. A verse you know well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Moms and dads, brothers and sisters, let me challenge you this morning. You are an ambassador for Christ, but you must never try to do it in your own strength. Paul knew that being a good ambassador wasn't about him being a good salesman, being a really friendly, funny, witty guy. No, Paul knew that on his own he didn't have the power and the strength to save anyone. He relied on God and on his power and strength. This is why he writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel... It, the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul knew that the power did not rest with him, but with God and with the gospel. Paul didn't have the power to save, but God does. This morning, I want to look at a man named Moses who would learn to rest in and rejoice at the good, glorious power of God. This is a lesson that we must learn as well. Whether you're a mother, a father, a student, a grandparent, single, or married, we must all learn to rest in and rejoice at the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us now as we look at your word to understand it correctly, to think rightly about it and about you. Father, be pleased to glorify yourself in us that we may learn to rest in you and trust you and follow you in all things. Conform us to your image. Make us like Christ that you may be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And as you turn there, I'll state the obvious. Before you can rest in or rejoice at the person and power of God, you must know God. You cannot rely upon Him until you know Him. This point cannot be minimized or overlooked unless you know, love, trust, adore, worship the one true God. You cannot rely upon Him or His power. And so this morning, let us praise God and thank Him that He has indeed revealed Himself. He revealed himself to Moses and he continues to reveal himself through his word today. Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. God reveals himself. God reveals himself. And except that God revealed himself, we would never know him. Except that God chose to speak and, and, and ultimately come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, we would be lost in darkness and sin for all of eternity. 
John 1.17 says about Jesus, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, explains to us and shows us exactly what God is like. God could have left us blind and dead and in darkness But instead, he revealed himself to us most perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ, who is God of very God. So what does God reveal here to Moses and to us as we have the opportunity to read these verses? Number one, God first and foremost reveals that he is holy. God is holy. Look at verse five. Then he said, that is God, then God said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Listen, it is holy ground because God is there. God is holy and therefore the ground becomes holy because he is there in a unique and special way. When we talk about God is holy, we are saying that God is totally other than us. He is infinitely elevated above us. He is ethically and morally pure and perfect. He is unstained and untainted by evil. He is glorious and radiant and eternally transcendent. God is not like us. He is holy. Notice how Moses responds to the holiness of God in verse 6. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, now, come on, Moses. Don't be so silly. Why are you hiding your face? Because Moses knows something. He knows that God is holy and that he is not. Moses knows. Moses knows that God is holy and he is not. God is a blazing, pure, glorious king. And Moses is, well, he's Moses. He's like us. He's sinful. He's inadequate. He's depraved. He's guilty. And God is holy. So how is it that sinful, corrupt people like you and me and like Moses can ever stand in the presence of God without being totally destroyed and consumed and annihilated in an instant. Let me read you the answer from the book of Jude. Jude 24 and 25, it's on your outline. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Jesus Christ that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for us and He has died in our place enduring the punishment and penalty for our sin. God is holy and yet He has made a way that sinful people may be brought into His presence and it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, God is personal. God is holy and God is personal. Look again at the first few words in verse 6. God said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice the personal and intimate way that God begins to explain himself to Moses. He says that he is the God of Moses' father. 
Before mentioning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God mentions Moses' dad, his father. He is the God of the great patriarchs, certainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but this same God is also the God of Moses' father. God is a holy God, but he is also a personal God. And here Moses learns that he will guide him and direct him and protect him just as he did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is easy for us, unfortunately, to detach ourselves from the true biblical historical narrative, but we must never do that. We must never forget that the same God who was the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses' father is our God. He is a intensely personal God watching over all of his children. This is why we must pray to him, read his word, follow him, love him, seek him, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is holy. He is also personal. Number three, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Look at verses 7 to 9. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God is compassionate. He sees the sufferings of His people. He knows all about it. He is intimately acquainted with everything that is happening to them. And this same God who cares for the Israelites, who cares for Moses, cares for you and for me. This same God who saw us lost and dead and enslaved to our sins had great compassion upon us in sending His Son to die in our place to set us free from the sin and from the death and from the guilt in which we were trapped in. God's compassion is glorious and perfect and doesn't just result in good intentions, but in actions and in demonstrations of His love and goodness. This is why we read of Christ in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Listen, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Jesus Christ knows all about every struggle and problem, and difficulty and temptation that you will ever face. And He is able and willing to give grace and mercy to sustain you and to enable you to glorify Him. God is compassionate. God is good. Let us go to Him and find mercy and grace. Number four, God is prepared. God is prepared. God is prepared to move and to act and to save and rescue His people. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, God says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. We serve a God who is always prepared. 
He's never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He never wonders what he's going to do next. He's never unsure of himself. He's sovereign and omniscient and he knows all and he possesses perfect wisdom. And so his plans are always the best plans and you can always trust his plans. God is prepared. He's always prepared. He's ready to go. But Moses, on the other hand, is not. God needs to do a work in Moses and God needs to do a work in us. God needs to ready and prepare Moses for what lies ahead. In our remaining moments, we're going to talk quickly about the loving plan, the legitimate panic, the long-term promise, the lasting person, the looming problem, the Lord's power and the lavish plunder. Number one, the loving plan. The loving plan. Look again at verse 10. Verse 10. God says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this is very interesting because God's plan involves Moses. Now, does God need Moses in order to accomplish his plan? Is God like, Moses, I have got a great plan. I am pretty sure that it's going to work, but I need you on board. I mean, it's kind of shaky. There's still some things to work out, but I think it's a good plan. I think it's going to work, but I need you on board. I need you to get on my team, and I think together maybe we can make this happen. You doing your part, I'll try and do my part, and and, and you need to contribute a lot, but maybe this is going to work. Is that how it is with God? Is God desperate for our attention, for our help, for our power to make his plan succeed? Of course not. And yet, listen, God is pleased and glorified to work through weak and sinful men and women like you and me, like Moses. Noted on your outline, as incredible as it seems, God chooses to glorify himself by involving us in his work. God does not need us, and yet he chooses us to work through us to accomplish his plans and purposes. God is a loving father who delights to have his children involved in his work. As I mentioned earlier, my wife and I have three daughters, Madison, Miriam, and McKaylee. And I love watching my three daughters help my wife in the kitchen. Okay? And if you didn't notice the quotation marks, you need to get those. Help my wife in the kitchen. Okay? My wife is very kind and gracious, and she purposefully invites my three little monsters into the kitchen to help her cook and prepare food. Now, why does my wife do this? Why does she do this? Does my wife ask for their help because she is in need of their expertise in matters of cooking? Does my wife ask for their help because they will speed up the prep time and the cook time and the cleanup time? They make messes of epic proportion. Why does my wife invite my girls into the kitchen to share in her work? She does this because she loves them and it is a joy for her to involve them in her work and to teach them new things. My wife gets our girls involved for their benefit and it is the same thing with God. Noted on your outline, God involves us in his work for our benefit, for our benefit, not for his God doesn't need Moses. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. But he loves us and wants to teach us and have us grow and learn new things. And so he involves us in his work. God's plan intentionally involves Moses. And God's plan today intentionally involves you and me. 
Because God delights to glorify himself by involving us in his work. Let's move from the loving plan to number two, the legitimate panic. The legitimate panic. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to Pharaoh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Now you can imagine Moses' surprise. Okay, God has been talking about delivering the nation of Israel from the Egyptians. God has been talking about how he's going to come down and rescue Israel and bring them out of Egypt and take them into the promised land. And I'm sure that Moses has been thinking to this point, this is great. Yes, God. Amen. I vote for that. You go. You do it. You come down. You bring them out. And then God drops a bomb on him in verse 11 when he says, I will send you to Pharaoh. Which brings legitimate panic into the life and mind of Moses. Moses is thinking, what do you mean you're going to send me to Pharaoh? How did, how did I get mixed up in this thing? You said that you were going to deliver him. You said that you would come down and now you're sending me to Pharaoh. How did I ever get mixed up in this, in this thing? Look at, look at exactly what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I? Now let's answer Moses' question. Who is he? Is he adequate on his own to bring God's people out of Egypt? Is he strong enough, smart enough, wise enough? Remember the last time Moses tried to rescue the Israelites, he killed one Egyptian, caused strife among his people, and had to flee the country as a murderer. He didn't do so well. Moses is inadequate for the task that God has called him to. And listen, friends, we must admit that we are inadequate in and of ourselves for the task that God has called us to. Has God called you to be a wife and a mother? Listen, in and of yourself, without God, you are not up for the job. Has God called you to be a husband and a father? Without the power of Christ, you are inadequate to fulfill your calling. Has God called you to be a student or a son or a daughter or a friend to those around you? You will fail if you attempt to do it in your own strength and in your own power The Apostle Paul rightly says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, listen, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Which brings us to our next point, number three, the long-term promise. The long-term promise. Look at what God says to Moses in verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. What promise does God give to Moses? Simply this, I will be with you. And friends, that changes everything. That changes everything. Moses, don't worry. Don't fear. I will be with you. You will come out of Egypt and you will worship me on this very mountain. Now let me ask you the question. If you were in Moses' shoes, how would you have responded to the promise of God? Is this promise enough for you? That God tells you, I will be with you. Is that enough for you? In Psalm 46.10, the psalmist says, cease striving. Other translations say, be still and know that I am God. Philippians 4.6 says, be anxious for nothing. Jesus said in John 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
Jesus said again in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Will God leave, abandon, and forsake his children who love and follow him? Not a chance. Not a chance. Whatever task or job or ministry that God has called you to, he will neither leave you nor forsake you in the midst of it. And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 42.11 does something so incredible and so helpful for us to take note of. It's on your outline. Psalm 42.11, where the psalmist talks to himself. And he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? What is, what is the psalmist doing? He's analyzing his condition. He's speaking to himself. He's recognizing the fact that he is disturbed. He is troubled. He is anxious. And, and, and he speaks truth into his life. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist is very helpful. He speaks truth into his own life. He reminds himself of who God is and what God will do and of the promises of God. And so he rightly tells himself, hope in God. God's plan and God's promises can be trusted because he is a God who never leaves or forsakes his children. This brings us to our next point. As Moses is readied for his mission, he needs to understand something of God's nature and character and person. In verses 13 to 15, God reveals himself to Moses as the unchanging, eternal, forever the same, lasting person. Lasting person. You know, we hear a lot in commercials these days about things that last. This deodorant is long-lasting. You'll smell great all day. This gum has long-lasting flavor. You can chew this thing for hours. These batteries are long-lasting. They're like the Energizer Bunny. They keep going and going and going and going. But look at what God says about Himself, about His incredible, eternal, unchanging, lasting person, character, and nature. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Listen, God simply is who he is. He always was, is, and will be the same. I believe I've shared this with you in the past, but it's so good it's worth repeating. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, writing about the unchanging character and nature of God, writes these words. It's on your outline. He says, Time marks the beginning of created existence. And because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. Began is a time word and can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Because God lives in an everlasting now, he has no past and no future. God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all our tomorrows as he has lived all our yesterdays. The same unchanging God that you walk with today knows the future 
controls the future and is sovereign in eternity future just as he is sovereign today and was sovereign in eternity past. Number five, the looming problem. The looming problem. Look at verses 16 to 19. God says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of G- uh, out." of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Pharaoh is going to be stubborn. Pharaoh is going to be rebellious and hard-hearted. Listen, simply knowing that God is with you, simply knowing and understanding the eternal, unchanging character and nature of God doesn't change the fact that you and I still live in a sin cursed, depraved, infected world. That's not changed by the fact that we know truth. Is Moses going to experience trials and problems? Oh baby, is he ever. Right? And they won't stop once he leaves Egypt either. Will followers of Jesus Christ face continual trials and difficulties? Absolutely. You are guaranteed it in the Word of God. James 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, when, when. Not if. Not if, but when. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Listen, we benefit from having our faith tested. We do. We benefit from having our faith tested in a variety of ways. God has a plan and a purpose for our good as we face trials and difficulties of all shapes and sizes and colors and shades. As Moses would learn, some trials come in pharaoh shapes. As mothers know, some trials come in baby shapes and toddler shapes and even teenager shapes. Brothers and sisters, the trials that we face and endure on this earth, whatever they may be, serve at least two grand purposes. Number one, they test our faith. And if we are true believers, they reveal our faith to be genuine. And that is a very good thing. That is a very good thing. To have your faith tested, to walk through a trial with God and to come out the other side knowing that you have remained steadfast in the Lord, that your faith is genuine, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And number two, the other benefit is these trials cause us to long for and earnestly desire the return of Jesus Christ when he will make all things new and right. Listen, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make in the midst of our trials and difficulties. We can either complain and listen to the ungrateful, sinful murmurings of our thoughts and feelings, or 
we can rejoice that God is still on his throne, that he is allowing our faith to be tested, and that Christ will soon return to make a new heaven and a new earth. This is a choice that every believer must make. Choose wisely. Number six. Number six. The Lord's power. The Lord's power. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. So Pharaoh is going to be stubborn. There is going to be problems. Pharaoh is going to be rebellious. He's not going to go along with the will and, the, and, and with the plan of God. So we read in verse 20, God says, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. The Lord is powerful. The Lord will accomplish his will and his plan. The Lord, listen, does not need to be defended or protected. Rather, we should always stop and pause and pity anyone like Pharaoh who chooses to make himself an enemy of God. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14 and you'll see what I mean. Exodus 14, we'll read verses 10 to 18. You know the scene. God has faithfully and miraculously and very powerfully brought the Israelites out of Egypt and now they stand at the Red Sea between the sea and between Pharaoh's army. Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verse 13. Notice how Moses responds. This is so good. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And you know what happened. God was honored. God was honored through Pharaoh and through his army. God was honored through the display of his power and greatness. See, God will always be honored. God will always be honored. God will always be glorified. God will be honored through the display of his power, in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy, and God will be honored through the display of his power, in his judgment and in his wrath on those who refuse to repent and humble themselves before God. But make no mistake about it, God will be honored, God will be glorified. 
Perhaps you are here this morning and you have never humbled yourself before God. Perhaps you have never confessed your sin and sought forgiveness based upon Jesus' life and death for you. If you have never done that, you are like Pharaoh. You are an enemy of God. And one day you will face His awful, powerful, eternal wrath. But the good news is you don't need to stay in that condition. You don't need to remain alienated and distant from God. You can be forgiven today. You can have joy in Christ and begin walking with Christ today. Jesus, who is God, came to earth and lived that perfect, sinless, righteous life. And he died on a cross and during the full fury of God's wrath so that everyone who turns to him and trusts in him and in him alone can be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, you will not be saved through your own power, through your own strength, through your own goodness. You must rely upon Christ for life and forgiveness. There is ultimate victory for the people of God. There is ultimate joy and peace for the people of God. Join the winning team. Okay, join the winning team. Don't remain an enemy of God any longer. Pray and ask God to forgive you of all your sins based upon the life and death of Jesus. Ask God to save you from his coming wrath that you may have life and joy in Christ. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. Listen, it's good to be a child of the King. It's good to be adopted into God's family. Which brings us to our last point, number seven, the lavish plunder. The lavish plunder. Go back to Exodus chapter three as we close things out. Exodus chapter three, look at verse 21 and 22. God tells Moses exactly how it's all going to end. How's it going to end? How's this going to turn out? What is it going to be like when we leave Egypt? God tells him. Exodus three, 21. God says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Listen, God doesn't just bring his people out of Egypt. God brings his people as victors out of Egypt. God brings them out as victorious victors that their oppressors are now giving to them gifts of gold and silver and clothing. And this is but a small glimpse and a small picture of the ultimate joy and victory that awaits the people of God. Listen, Jesus himself said in John sixteen thirty three, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulations, But take courage, I have overcome the world. Listen, this morning, this Mother's Day, I ask you the question, who are you relying upon? What are you relying upon? Yourself, your power, your abilities, or upon Christ? Upon His power, His wisdom, His word, His promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for your word. We thank you and praise you for how you so worked 
in the life of Moses. We thank you and praise you that we have the benefit to read that true, accurate, historical account, which is your word, that we may receive benefit and comfort and courage because of it. Father, we thank you for including us in your work, for inviting us to be a part of your kingdom. Help us to learn total and complete dependence upon you. May we know and experience the joy and the freedom and the peace and the power that can only come from you. Use us for your glory. Empower us to walk in joyful fellowship and in obedience to you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand as we close singing together a wonderful song. that that looks forward to that day when we stand victorious with Christ. And again, I, I want to extend the invitation. If you do not know Jesus, if you have not sought forgiveness based upon the life and death of Jesus, today can be the day of salvation. Let's sing together.